This month marks the one-year anniversary of Al-Qaeda's cyberfighters DDoS attacks on US banks. Over the last year, banking institutions have enhanced their cyber attack defenses, improved their internal and external cyber intelligence sharing, and raised the bar for cross-industry and cross-sector cyber threat preparedness. Here Bill Nelson of the FSI SAC and Doug Johnson of the ABA reflect on the attacks over the last year and foreshadow what could be next. Hi, I'm Tracy Kitten with Information Security Media Group. Bill and Doug, as I noted, it's been nearly a year since we saw the first distributed denial of service attacks linked to Al-Qaeda strike on September 18th. What can you tell us about the industry's reaction to those first waves of attacks? Yeah, this is Bill. Well, what happened was the financial services sector has an all-hazards playbook. It really calls for the creation of an incident assessment team to react to major incidents affecting the sector. When we realized that this DDoS attack was different, it wasn't like others we had seen. It was directed against multiple financial institutions. They were not one-off type events. They were actually sustained over days as it turned out, you know, weeks. So it was like a DDoS we'd never seen before. We realized quickly that we need to stand up an incident response team to this new DDoS threat. I think the reaction was actually very effective. Uh, this DDoS response team really demonstrated how effective uh, information sharing can be. In fact, I heard one bank give a presentation on the benefit they saw because you literally had dozens of other analysts helping you as you were being attacked, you know, with advice, uh, best practices, you know, how to react to certain new types of tactics that they were using. Tracy, this is Doug. I think that the, one of the things that I've really been impressed about is that level of collaboration that Bill spoke of because it's not just about you know, this particular set of cyber fighter attacks. It's about the broad number of DDoS attacks which the industry is, is suffering from a, a variety of parties. And so it, a lot of times it's less about attribution than it is about what the nature of the attack is. And so when we saw, for instance, uh, community banks being attacked or when the ISAC saw the community bank being attacked essentially at the same time it was being attacked, I think we were able to provide those uh, resources that Bill was describing, you know, really to anybody that was suffering that kind of an event. And I think that was, was very impressive to the, the community banks that were able to, to benefit from that and also their third-party service providers that are, are part of that as well. Absent that infrastructure, I think that it really does make it difficult for banks to, to be able to really get the lessons learned from uh, the attacks that have occurred against other institutions. Now, much of what we know about Al-Qazam came from posts on Payspin, and then, of course, later there were interviews that this group conducted with the media. But, Bill and Doug, what have we learned about this self-proclaimed hacktivist group over the last year? Bill, uh, members of Congress actually have publicly raised the question of whether this is really a hacktivist group or whether it's somehow connected to the Iranian government. Obviously, if it's the latter, that's more of a question for our government and something that we in the sector really can't address. But we did learn that they had sophisticated capabilities, much more sophisticated than what we've seen from other hacktivist groups like Anonymous or from criminal DDoS activities uh, that try to hide account takeover. Yes, and, and Tracy, this is Doug, to, again, think about that from the community bank perspective. It's really always less about that attribution. It's really about seeing as the level of sophistication of the attacks increases, and, and we did see that as Bill described that everybody in the environment has access to that information. And that's why we're so interested in ensuring that the FSISAC has the capability to do that across the entire structure. We, we don't assume that institutions have that information, and we think in some cases redundancy is good. But I think that just the very fact that the 
FSISAC has over 4,200 individual institution members now allows us to really have broad coverage as those attacks get more sophisticated. And how would you say that financial institutions have progressively enhanced their mitigation strategies as well as their capabilities? DDoS preparedness really requires a plan, and that includes, and Doug's mentioned some of this already, hardware, making sure you have sufficient bandwidth, ISP collaboration established up front, botnet DDoS mitigation service, remote redundancy, and a whole bunch of other tactics. All of these strategies are outlined in the FSISAC DDoS threat viewpoint that was actually updated three times in the last year as these uh, tactics changed. It's made available to all FI members of the FSISAC. We've also made it through our association members like the ABA and other associations, made it available to members of other organizations, and also working with the regulators. We've worked with our government to, to make sure it gets out to everyone and to other sectors for that matter. Yes, I think that the dynamic nature of the viewpoint has been extremely important as the threat has changed. And it's also provided us with a tool that also assists the third-party Internet banking service providers and the other web hosting services and, and other entities that really have a very important role as we think about DDoS because one of the things that we focus on is the fact that a denial of service attack against, for instance, a web hosting environment for a, a large number of institutions can impact not just that institution but also the other institutions that are part of that web hosting environment. And so... What we want to do is ensure that those environments have those same tools so that not only can they protect themselves, but then they're the customers of those providers know what questions to ask in terms of, of how they're protecting the environment. So I think you know, having those things like the viewpoint are very important to accomplish that. I'm curious to know, what more would you say needs to be done to ensure that all banking institutions, even those that aren't members of the FSISAC or the ABA, are properly enhancing their defenses? You know, it, it takes the ability to make sure that the institution has the ability to ask the right questions of the folks that are providing them those services. And as those questions change and as the threat changes, uh, that they continually stay at that because it's a dynamic process. It's not a one-off. And so it's a recognition that because the threat environment over the course of the last year plus has, has been substantially different than it was previous to that, that we need to be continually engaged with the parties that are providing those services to us to ensure that they have that risk management process, which is perpetually understanding how that environment is changing and putting in new threat mitigation measures as a result. And so, again, I think what we assume is that redundancy is good there. So to the extent that we have the authority to do so, we ensure that the kind of resources that the FSISAC has are available on the members-only side of, of our website as well. And we encourage every other trade association to do that and, and actively engage their membership and those that provide services to that membership. We heard from one institution that was attacked. They had those documents. They were able to actually prepare a business resilience plan you know, for this new type of DDoS. And when it actually occurred, they were ready. And in fact, they said they couldn't have done it without that information. So, yeah, it does work. So, Bill, from your perspective, what would you say over the last year the industry has learned as far as the mitigation strategies that work the best? Well, I think I did mention already, I think, you know, looking at your hardware, your bandwidth, making sure you have the ISP collaboration set up, the remote redundancy, having uh, DDoS mitigation providers that you can turn to. It's setting it up in advance, not just waiting till your 
see your name on a paste bin announcement or all of a sudden you are being attacked. If you're prepared, you'll be ready. Most of the stuff that we do produce, though, we make available to the members, but we don't produce it on a public site. Well, Tracy, I think that, again, uh, going uh, on what Bill was saying, which I think was entirely appropriate, I think that what we have is, you know, recognition that it takes a variety of levels of defense in order to counteract these threats and that those levels of defense change as the threat changes. And so I think that really gets back to what I think is real important. And I'll use an, an anecdote that it's not associated with the cyber fighters, but that more with the more recent Op USA exercise over the Labor Day weekend. As you know, there were a, a variety of large financial institutions that were targeted, but there were also some community banks that were targeted as well. And what I found really powerful was the fact that I could take the information about where the attacks were coming from, entry points the attack was going to, and what toolkits were being utilized. I could essentially provide that to the community bank that was being attacked directly after those other larger banks were being attacked. And they were not currently members of the ISAC, and so they were just exceedingly impressed with their ability to get that information at the time that they were notified the attack was going to occur, and rather than just be telling them that the attack was going to occur and go forth and do good. And we were also able to get them in contact with the folks that were directly engaged with the institutions associated with that attack, so they had the real-time availability of large bank practitioners to be able to protect their environment. I just, again, think that's very powerful. But going back to Al-Qazam specifically, right now we are in the so-called fourth phase of attacks, but this phase has been by and large unsuccessful. Would you say that this phase is over? Yeah, it's really up to them whether it's over or not, but I think it's too early to tell. Yeah, I don't think you assume that it's over. I, I don't think you uh, ever assume that attacks are not going to continue to occur. And that's, I think, just back to some of the points that Bill has made about the fact to be dynamic and the fact to have, you know, perpetual evaluation of how those effects are coming into our institutions. And that's what the ISAC's all about, frankly, is to provide that 24-7 watch of that environment and to allow and give the institutions the capacity to report that in to central receiving so it can get reported out to the industry generally. And I don't think you ever say that a particular attack vector is, is over. So what would you say is next? Al-Qazam alluded to the fact early on that its attacks would run for about one year. Have their attacks exceeded their proverbial shelf life? Again, that's a question you have to ask uh, Al-Qazam cyberfighters. Yeah, we hope they've run their course, but that's entirely up to the persons that have launched these attacks. And I agree with Doug. I think we have to prepare, continue to prepare for more if that happens. So. Do you think that Al-Qazam will partner with other hacktivist groups, such as the Syrian Electronic Army? Well, the, the Syrian Electronic Army supports the Assad regime of Syria, and Al-Qassam, because of their Iranian connection, whether that's formal or informal, I don't know, uh, if they're political hacktivists or whatever, there seem to be government. Iran really supports the insurgents in Syria, so I don't see the, them banding together. I uh, think that from what I'm hearing from our bank leadership and particularly our community bank CEOs that are increasingly becoming engaged in this issue, that you know, they really would be less interested in whether or not there's a combination of forces than what that ended up looking like. It's less about attribution than it is about what these attacks look like so we can put proper mitigation in place. So that's fully what I think we focus on as opposed to the, the attribution. And I think that's consistent, frankly, with the kind of information that we need from government because when we're talking about the kind of things we need from government, we don't necessarily need attribution. We need to know what it looks like. And so, again, that's our focus. 
And so what about some of the risks that these DDoS attacks could pose where cybercrime comes into play or fraud linked to these attacks? Well, again, that's a hypothetical. I think nothing's a certainty. There's always a possibility that occurred, but we've not seen that to date. Yes, I think that I agree with Bill, but at the same time, I think we do have to be watchful of the extent to which that does combine because in the uh, community bank environment, again, I keep going back to that, we have had cyber attacks uh, along the lines of Dirt Jumper that combined uh, DDoS you know, with uh, some kind of account takeover or other type of uh, economic crime activity. And I think one of the things that could happen at the customer level is because they know that DDoS attacks have occurred, when they see one of those screens that, that come up in concert with an, an electronic crime, they say that the system's down when it's really not because it's, essentially the session's been hijacked but they just assume that this is a DDoS attack against their institution and they don't do what we always tell the customer to do, and that's contact the institution to ensure that the institution is, in fact, going through a, a denial of service attack or that the system is, in fact, down. But they're ensuring that they know what the actual activity of the institution is. We've talked about information sharing, but can you explain the ongoing role that the FSISAC will be playing? The one thing, we'll continue to keep that DDoS threat mitigation toolkit updated as I said earlier, it's been updated three times in the past year. As we see new techniques used, we'll get them out to the membership uh, right away and update that. And this is really valuable to prepare to mitigate the risk, not just from these DDoS attacks from Al-Qassam, but also other types of DDoS attacks, you know, the criminal ones, things we see from uh, Anonymous, et cetera. So I think that's probably our, our lead role when it comes to the DDoS mitigation. I'm very proud to be uh, a member of the FSISAC board, and one of the primary reasons why we at ABA uh, start to do that is to ensure that we can continue to drive uh, financial institutions toward FSISAC membership. And so, as I said before, I think it, it's just uh, real impressive that the FSISAC has grown from essentially a, a big boys club of 60 or so institutions to over 4,200 members at this particular juncture, and that just demonstrates the maturity of the ISAC. Uh, we have more work to do in terms of gaining additional membership, both domestically as well as internationally. Bill and Doug, I'd like to thank both of you for your time this morning. You're very welcome. Yes, yeah, thank you. Again, we've just heard from Bill Nelson of the FSISAC and Doug Johnson of the ABA. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tracy Kitten.